Marcus reads his resurrection spell scroll and pulls John's soul back into his body. But where has he been? And who exactly has come back? Welcome to episode 11 of the Mike Keel Campaign Diaries. Witness me! The party began the session with the drought priestess captured. They are ready to interrogate her. Marcus decides he's going to be the one to do the talking and tries to convince her to tell the truth. Volf guides his persuasive tongue through John, and the priestess reveals everything. She tells the party about her house, the faint Labar, which made up the story about the wood elf to try and save face. Better to be attacked from without than look weak from within, she told the party. She also mentioned many things that are happening Menzo Berenson. She mentions the head of the Council of Spidal, Spiders, Gromf Banre, brother of the Matron Mother. He's been acting kind of strange. The, the Matron Mother herself acting kind of odd for several months, ever since her vizier, Vezrin Devir, disappeared. The priestess is not certain how exactly they could win a war against the Wood Elves, but she believes that it's advantageous for her house, no matter what. During this interrogation, John walks forward, plunging his life-stealing dagger into the heart of the priestess. She slumps over dead. John quietly cleans the knife, puts it back in his holster. A short moment later, the body of the priestess begins to convulse, and they see the form of the priestess morph, the bottom half elongating, legs spindly begin to grow out of the body, it's turning into a drider. The party immediately starts attacking, slashing and smashing into the gigantic form, but the drider is able to slip out the building, badly hurt and apart. Then in walks, Kryli Hakar, a brigandarth mercenary, who was the one who was planning on meeting them. He asks the party, what's their purpose in the city? And Marcus pretty unconvincingly talks about recovering the artifact and then wanting to avert the war. And Kyrly seems pretty uninterested. Then John reveals his powers from law. And Krylin well, he agrees that his boss, Jarlaxle, or Jaraxle, is going to be pretty interested in something like this. A male priest of Lolth, a human at that. So, he says that his company will find them. He's going to set the meeting up. Just try to stay alive. And so, the next step is that the party decides they should go to the Sokere. As they walk up, Gus just walks past the guards and they're dumbfounded. And Then they react and try and grab as the rest of the party moves forward. Marcus commands or casts hold person on both of them, freezing them. One is able to shrug it off, but the experience itself makes the guards wonder if they were wrong. 
And so the party walks straight into the Tower of Mages inside the city of Menzo Berenson. Once they enter, there's a smartly dressed drow woman, and she asks them what they want. And the party tells them that they're here to see Gromph. She asks if the, they're expected, and the party replies simply no. This confuses her, but she leads them anyway up to Gromph's chamber, up on the third story of the tower. The woman introduces the party and immediately steps out, as it appears that Gromph is in a pretty bad mood. They talk, and Gromph eventually, when they say that they're here to help, asks if they want to enlist in the war. In the course of that, he ends up referencing the stars asking if their North Star had guided them here. John believed this was odd and probed. He knows a little bit about Underdwellers and doesn't believe that Underdwellers would speak about heavenly bodies. Gromp clearly lies and says that he was just trying to appeal to the surface dwellers. Everyone in the party can tell he's lying. And so Marcus presses and asks Gromp, why would he lie about that? And Gromp, angry, starts walking up to Marcus. He reaches his hand out towards him. The party springs forward into action and immediately attack and kill the mage. As the Gromp, the mage, falls down dead, his body changes into this purple skin, faceless, long creature. Not at all human or drow. As soon as that happens, an infernal circle pops up from the ground, is burned into the floor of the chamber around the dead figure, and five devils appear. One, four on the edge of the circle, and one standing above the body. The party immediately engages the devils as the center one scoops up the body and disappears in a ball of flame. At that, the rest of the devils grow in size and begin to lash out with their long, fiery forks. The party, already weak from their ambush, unrested before they came here, are able to defeat the devils, but they end up spending all of their warlock spells. Their health is low, and they've used up many of their abilities. But they are victorious. And so they search the room. In it, they find a sending stone that looks very similar to the one they found in Cluj, Napolco, Romania, but a little bit different. They also find a potion of clear liquid with what appears to be a blue toenail inside, a flask containing a viscous, cloudy gray potion, and the beads of it seem to form on the edge of the flask and then disappear. They find a spell scroll that has an eye on the top, and as Eloran and John's talk about it. They believe it's a clairvoyance spell scroll, though they're not certain. They also find a thick pink potion that smells of rose water. As they're searching, they begin to hear sounds of heavily armored men moving from outside the door. And so the party takes defensive positions up on the upper deck of Grump's chambers. As they open the door, that same drow mage who had escorted them in, has a retinue of an elite row warrior, three other well-armored warriors, and three scouts, and they all enter the chamber. The woman asks, where is Grump? 
What in the name of the demon web pits is that burned into the floor? She immediately casts poison cloud centered on the party. Aloran is knocked out. The scouts and the guards begin to shoot poisoned arrows, and they poison both Gus and Draki. The party, realizing that they are unlikely to be, even if they're victorious here, are unlikely to be able to fight their way all the way down the tower, decide it's best to jump out the window from the third story. And so they lay down as much attack to cover their retreat as possible. Azrak picks up Aloran and jumps out the back window. In midair, he twists, pulling the uh, half-warbreed's body onto his and putting his back towards the ground, bracing for what he knows will be an intense pain. But he protects the unconscious Eloran and keeps him alive. Draki jumps out the window and is able to land fairly safely. John jumps out, uncertain of how he will land, and barely survives. Marcus falls down, but is otherwise not too greatly hurt. Gus, the last to leave, continues to lay down uh, some attack and ends up using his wand that he picked up in the Yuan-Ti temple, pointing it at the captain of the guard and tells him to grovel before him. And the captain immediately falls down on the ground, genuflecting. During this, he then sprints out the back window as he smashes through, he yells, Witness me! And so the party decides to regroup on the ground at the base of the temple, trying to decide what they should do. Is their next step into the city? Or is it into the wilds of the Underdark? It's like jumping from the fire pan into the from the frying pan into the fire, but which is the fire? In the city, full of dro, xenophobic, who believe that they use some devil magic to kill their head mage, or into the wilds of the Underdark, where a party with no one with dark vision, or night vision, or any kind of ability to see in darkness. We'll see. Now it's time for some DM thoughts. I think I'd like to start off talking about how awesome of a group I have. Um, I mean, I have a really awesome group because I have, you know, I've got a, a pretty large group, six players, but they're all very engaged. Um, they're all interested in updating their character sheets and understanding what's happening there and wanting to write and have backstory that's involved. So it's very rewarding to be able to, um, you know, just DM for them in general. But they're also awesome humans, uh, awesome people. So several of my players have taken it upon themselves over the last week to try and engage me because I think they sense that my mental my mental health was maybe not awesome. Um, and that's probably true. I mean, I think we all recently have had uh, some difficulties. So, uh, but just their willingness to reach out and to 
really directly talk to me about that and make it important, I think is awesome, right? Because they're great humans, they're great people and great friends. And I'm very lucky to have them as friends and I'm very lucky to have them um, playing with me at the table. So that's great. Um, so then, you know, talking about now the, the game and my thoughts on the game, I had this awesome scene in my head about the Dryder coming back. And I thought it was going to be so great because, you know, um, there's this great parallelism between John coming back from the demon web pits and then this priestess coming back from the demon web pits. And John comes back into his body and he's certainly not great. And the character, the player who plays John is a DM and wrote up this awesome kind of little adventure for what happened to John while he was in the demon web pits, which I thought was awesome. Um, but I wanted a way of conveying that to the party without exactly directing everything back into what happened. So I thought that the, the, you know, providing that parallelism would be good. I also wanted to highlight that in the outer planes, time works a little bit different. Um, and I think that will become more important later on in the campaign that, uh, you know, where I think the campaign is heading, we're going to probably involve more of the outer planes, um, which I think is great, but um, you know, helping to build my world and identify that the time works different, right? It's both faster and slower in some ways. Um, so was, I thought it was good. I think I maybe waved the DM fiat hand too much and I just said, well, the driver's going to leave because I want I want to have that looming threat out there with a personal vendetta. And so the party all got to take a whack and they didn't eliminate all of the hit points, but they all probably wanted to take another hit at this thing and they wanted to have advantage. And I probably should have just given it to them. Then I was nervous about if they did like 200 points of damage, I've got to kill the drider and I, I wanted it. And, and I really shouldn't have wanted it, I guess is really what it comes down to. I should have just been like, yeah, you killed the drider. That's great. They still get the same parallelism. So maybe that's not as great for me. Um, so, you know, that's a good lesson as a DM, right? If you can't get so caught up on what you think is a good scene, um, let the party build the scene, right? It's, it's collaborative. Um, so, I mean, I thought that was good. They also rolled, I, I thought it was interesting, I ended up telling them, they rolled exactly the DC, they put a DC 12 persuasion or intimidation to um, get this priestess to reveal everything, at, or 27, DC 27. And they did. They, they got exactly 27, and it was because John provided a little bit of guidance, which I thought was even better from a story standpoint, that the magic of Lolf is what helps to put uh, Marcus over the edge and being persuasive. So um, I was a little surprised they went to the circuit. Right? I mean, this is probably bad storytelling on my part, so another DM, DM fault. Right, the the party doesn't really know what they should do. I thought they were gonna like wait a sec because I was like, "Hey, try not to die," and I was thinking that in from a story standpoint, right? They made contact now. The the mercenary company is gonna be slow to warm up to them, right? And you've got to go through layers until you meet the boss. But D and D doesn't really work that way. You just walk in and talk to the king. So. 
I, I probably tried to make that too, I guess, realistic. And in doing so, I confused them because I said, try not to die. And hoping that they would just kind of hang out for a bit. And then I could have the, uh, you know, the Brig and Darth come back and make contact again. But they decided, well, we're just going to go up, um, you know, and try and talk to the Council of Spiders. Um, so there may be something that I won't reveal here, and I may reveal to the players later, because players listen to this, um, that makes Gus walking past the guards unique. And we'll we'll probably develop that next, so I'm not going to explain why uh, they were able to do so so effectively, uh, and, and why everyone's reactions were so strange. Um, so that was that. The other thing is uh, I tried, I guess I tried embracing the the unknown, uh, when they went to go talk to Gromp. And I was like, okay, well, Gromp, I already knew that uh, he was going to be this doppelganger. Um, and I, I thought that they would, like, meet him and he'd be a little weird and erratic. And then they could meet him later and that they would slowly piece and puzzle together what was happening. Um, but I thought it was good to try and leave a clue. And so I said something that was, an I feel like, an important clue for a variety of reasons. And one of my players, again, John's player, said, can I roll insight on what he said? And maybe it was because it was a little different, a little odd. I think it was great. Um, I was like, absolutely. He rolled. He rolled well. And so uh, I was like, you know that this is odd because. Um, and I definitely highlighted a real valid reason for why that would be odd. And so... Um, you know, it was, I guess, me being good as a DM and just rolling and embracing the unknown um, and kind of moving forward for what that is. Uh, Gromp, I then rolled uh, without the player seeing for his uh, deception check, and he rolled a solid one, um, right? And so I let the dice gods make the decision that everybody knows that this guy's lying. I knew that that would create the situation that created, which was now Gronth is going to get whomped. Um, and he's not actually a mage, but I wanted him to seem like a mage and maybe have the party back down. So I was having him move forward and reaching out his hand to touch Marcus. Uh, and the party just decides they're just going to start beating him up, right? Pulp Fiction style, um, which I thought was great. Um, and I needed to kind of scramble and come up with something. So I knew that... Um, I wanted the, the, uh, there to be an infernal connection with this doppelganger. So I was like, all the better. They're going to come snatch the body up. There can obviously be some kind of a death ward, but an infernal death ward, right? We pull demons up from the nine hells and they'll bring your body back down to the nine hells because your work is not yet done. Um, which I thought was pretty good. Um, I did kind of nerf them. Um, I had to scramble, and so I used um, probably too powerful of devils for that. And I had to like scramble find these pictures. I hope the party, the character, the players were patient with me scrambling around for that. Um, anyway, they also initially just left the room. I knew I wanted them to find a sending stone, and I had written that down ahead of time. Because uh, I think that's an important clue. But the uh, all the other stuff, I didn't know. And they rolled, and I just didn't pay attention. And it wasn't until after the session the next day that I was thinking about it. I'm like, if they're searching a mage's room, 
a mage's study, they've got to find stuff. Like the archmage of Menzo Berenzin is going to have cool stuff in the room, even if it's a short period of time before the guards arrive. Uh, and that was, just, again, just, I think, total improv because it made the most sense that obviously the guards would arrive. If you go and are having a loud combat with huge devils in a room that you're supposed to be talking to some person in, they're going to come with armed guards and try and find out what's happening. Uh, and then I I thought when they heard it and I signaled to them that they were going to do it, they were just going to throw a rope down and climb down. They decided they wanted to go fight it out, which is fine. And so we did a bit of combat and uh, they they could have easily punched through. The, the draw were really about to wilt from where they were, uh, but they might have done more damage to the party than they were willing to take. And so I uh, thought that was good. I also want to applaud one of my other players, right, for reaching into their Gus's character sheet and realizing he still has some of those wands from the Oanti. Um, you know, I ignore encumbrance because, you know, whatever. At, at some point you end up, you're going to have a bunch of impossible magical pocket dimensions to put all the things and knickknacks that you need if you need knickknacks. So whatever. Um, so I thought that was really good. Um, you know, I guess the only thing that I am a little sad about is I wish that a player character didn't go down, um, right? Because what that means is for that combat, the player is out, um, you know, and this, the I think this player prefers combat over role-playing, so I was less excited that that happened, but it was a short period of time. It was a pretty quick battle, so I think it was all right. Um and then, uh, yeah, they're, they've got the time to sit and figure out where we're going to go next. So I'm interested in that. But, um, yeah. Anyway, appreciate it. Stay safe.